All right, we have been in a series on the Corinthian letters. Today we're going to conclude the first letter to the Corinthians. I will be beginning the second letter after I do a series uh, related to the books we're, we're reading, the uh, 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 Benedict Option. So I hope you're reading that book and that you're looking at the videos and you're kind of getting uh, ready because part of what I want to do is talk about them and have discussion. I don't know how we'll do that with recording. We'll figure it out. But I think it's important that we have some discussion of that because, and I placed it in between the two Corinthian letters because I think it will fit. You'll see that as I uh, complete that today in uh, chapter 16. Paul's talked to the Corinthians about the issue of unity. They're divided over leadership. They're divided over uh, um, uh, sin that they've allowed inside their congregation. They're divided over their gifting. They're divided over their uh, views of certain things. They're really missing the point. The danger is everybody does what's right in their own eyes. That's one extreme. The other extreme is everybody is in lockstep with everybody else because one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Paul's not talking about uniformity or chaos. He wants everything done in de- decently and in order. And he says the, the variability that's in us apart from our sin is to be part of the unity. I describe it this way in a number of places. God gives to us gifts, relationships, finances, and all those things unevenly so that we can redistribute them with each other, which brings about the unity. In other words, uh, the person who has a gift that irritates you, you're probably going to need at some point, you know. So that's that's the idea of unity of the body. Uh, Last week, we looked at the gospel of resurrection, which is the primary message. The resurrection in this context, incarnation and resurrection, means that God is saving the creation and our bodies, not just going to float us off to another world somewhere. Somehow Christianity's gotten this idea that we're dying and going to the promised land. And the biblical text is not this kind of amillennial view, but a view that says Jesus will come back bodily. We will be changed bodily. The creation itself will ultimately be changed substantially. And there will be a new heaven, new earth after the kingdom period, and all of that is done in this reality. God is saving his creation, not saving us from his creation, but saving the creation with us as the image of God and the image of his son in that context. A doctrine that's significantly been lost even among evangelicals and Baptists. So now we come to a, the final chapter as Paul closes the letter. So I called it closing the letter. And this includes greetings and some last minute thoughts that reveal the relational nature of the people of God. The last chapters of the epistles are always interesting because how do you end a letter? You end a letter by kind of throwing everything else you wanted to say in it in kind of a 
a hodgepodge, you know. Uh, or it's not like you're writing a treatise and at the end of that treatise you give a conclusion of everything you've said. You just kind of throw this stuff at the end and say, I'll talk to you later kind of thing. And that's what Paul does in these letters. Now remember, we talked about this at the beginning, Paul intended for his letters to be read in the congregations. And the one that came to the Corinthians was supposed to be read by the church at Ephesus, the one at Ephesus to be read at Corinth, Thessalonica. He wanted the letters to be circulated and read among them so that they would have a common knowledge of what he was saying to them. And it became the process of the early believers to, they already were reading the Torah each time they gathered. They were already reading the prophets, the Haftorah sections. They now added the Gospels and the Epistles. Probably first the Epistles and then the Gospels because people think they were written in that order. But the idea was that the process was part of the liturgy and part of the uh, gathering that they would all hear what the apostles had said. And those apostles still belong to us. I have people all the time say, uh, does the church have apostles today? And I always run into people who have a business card that says they're an apostle. Okay. Uh, But the apostles aren't dead. They're with the Lord. And what they've written is still for us. And therefore, we are reading those those letters. So we get to chapter 16, and Paul is now going to, in 24 verses, or what we have turned into 24 verses, he's going to come to a conclusion. Uh, I think he's already hit the high note, which is the resurrection and the kingdom to come and the unity that needs to be there. Now he's going to be adding some practical and relational context for them. So the first four verses, he says, Now, concerning the collection for the holy ones, for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you do. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collection may be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Now, interesting passage, a passage that has been uh, usurped, if you will. Uh, If you have ever gone to a traditional Baptist or other church that has little offering envelopes, where you fill out your name and you put the offering in the envelope and that, usually this verse is there. Either the prove the tithe verse from the prophet Malachi, (laughs) Malachi, the Italian prophet, right? Uh, Or this verse that says, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside and save. As if what this verse is talking about is the congregational offering. It is not. It is not talking about worshiping on the first day of the week. That verse is used for that. This is a context that has been lost in most of the churches, but is well understood in the synagogues. In the biblical requirements of the Torah, the tithe and first fruits are brought to the temple and used by the participants for their participation in the temple. That's why they could turn it into money 
and take the money and buy whatever they want and eat and rejoice before the Lord. <coughs> you guys are familiar with this. It's what we do with our tithe. We, we participate in our fellowship together when we gather to worship in our food and then the, the balance goes into the offering box and is used for the congregation. That's that primary tithe. There is a second tithe. That second tithe is uh, described in Leviticus and in Exodus and number of places that says this tithe is used for taking care of the poor and the widow within your gates. It's what Christians call charity or alms and what Jews call zedekah, justice. It's used to help. It's not given to the to the uh, temple. It's used to locally help those who are in need. And again, you are familiar with that. Now, Paul has decided, and we see this in chapter 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, where he'll talk about it again, and we see it in other contexts. Paul's decided that those churches that he has started, which are predominantly Gentile, there are Jews among them, but they're predominantly Gentile. This is part of the diaspora. The Jews in Jerusalem are being kicked out of their synagogues because they believe in Jesus. They are, they are suffering uh, because of famines and other problems that are happening in the Holy Land. The, the Roman oppression is there. There are difficulties. And Paul says, you have gained the spiritual blessing of Abraham that rightfully belongs to Israel, you should, re, you should return some things to them and take care of the holy ones, the saints that are in Jerusalem. So what Paul's talking about is an offering, a benevolence offering, a tzedakah offering that he is taking up among the churches of Galatia and the churches of Corinth and others that he is going to bring at Pentecost to Jerusalem. That's what he's talking about. And if you read the book of Acts and these other passages, it's very clear that's what he's doing. Now, what does he say for them to do? He says, concerning that collection for the holy ones, the poor of Jerusalem, I directed the churches of Galatia, and I want you to do the same. On the first day of every week, you are to put aside and save as may be as you may prosper, so that there are no collections when I come. Now what Paul's saying is this. They would worship on Shabbat in their homes, in the synagogues, in the Christian assemblies, and that celebration would usually end Saturday night coming into Sunday when they would remember the resurrection. So this notion that they worshipped on the first day of the week was really Saturday night when the first day of the week happened. We still have that retention with, with some of our holy days. And then they would leave. You remember one Saturday night, Paul was leaving the next morning, which was the first day of the week, and Eutychus fell out the window. And, uh, so he must have preached a long time. So that's what's going on. Now Paul says, now the next day, which is now the first business day, you're going to look over your, your money and your resources and decide what you're going to do. 
And he says, when you do that, if the Lord has prospered you, I want you to take some of that money and set it aside. This is consistent with Leviticus and other things. When you find extra money that you have, an extra sheave in the field, you leave that for the poor. You don't absorb that. So they were to set money aside so that they would have it so that when Paul came, they would say, here's the money for the saints in Jerusalem. Now in 2 Corinthians, he's going to say to them, I'm warning you that the other churches are all excited and we told them that you've been doing this for a year and so we want you to make sure that you have put that money aside and it hasn't been affected by covetousness. Meaning, I put the money aside and I go, that's a large amount. I could use some of that. Which means they weren't giving it to the church. They were maintaining it as their own stewardship. And then they were going to send that to Jerusalem uh, at Pentecost to help them. So that's what Paul's talking about. And in doing this, there is a unity that takes place between Gentile believers and Jewish believers. This is one of the reasons I always encourage you to take some of your tzedakah and use it for Jewish causes. Messianic causes for certain, but Jewish causes. That bringing that to Israel is valuable. Now, you've got to be careful how you do that. Uh, when Trevor and I <laughs> went to Israel, Trevor brought some stuff to, to give and help the communities there. So he had extra luggage, and he put his luggage in his luggage, and then put it in the wrong place, and they thought he was making a bomb or something, so he spent a long time in security, and I thought he wasn't going to leave Jerusalem when I left. I couldn't find him, and finally I found him. So, uh, you know, the reality is that that caring for Israel is important. The Chabad telethon is coming up. They always come up around the, the new year. That's a time when you can take some of your tzedakah and give it in that context, which is a way of unifying us with Israel in a, in a very practical way. Uh, too many churches take this verse out of context and miss the point that God wants us to be using our resources to help the poor and to help one another and do that kind of thing. Now, as a congregation, you are very good at that, so I'm going to leave that alone and move on to the next verses. Chapter 16, verse 5 says, When I come to you, I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now, just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I am also. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. Concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. And it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Now, this is fascinating, because the Corinthians are divided over these guys. I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos, 
I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. Timothy's a young guy. He's just a, he's just a punk hanging around Paul. You know, uh, I'm not sure he's really like the apostles. We, we got to watch out for him, right? So Paul says to Timothy, let no man despise your youth. But be thou an example of the believer in all things. And set these things in order in the church. You're, you're functioning for me. So what Paul says is, I want to come and see you, but I don't want to come just for a few days. So I'm not going to come now. I'm going to come later. And I may spend the whole winter with you. I'll spend some time and we'll take care of some of these problems. Uh, but I've got a real opportunity Now that I've got to deal with, and there are problems. Wherever there are opportunities, there are going to be problems. Wherever you have a chance to do kingdom things, there are going to be problems with doing that. That's just the way it is. If you believe that the easy way, the way that's got no problems, is the way of blessing, you are a modern contemporary Christian and not a biblical one. Uh, Anyone who's lived in this faith for a while, knows that when you try to do biblical things, there are things that get in the way. Uh, Mundane things and serious things that get in the way. So he says, I want you to know that if Timothy comes, I want you to treat him well. And Apollos doesn't want to come and see you now, but he will come later. And Paul says something about them that's interesting. I want you to send them on their way in peace. Now, if we unpeel the operation of the churches at this time, and a source for that for you is the new book put out by First Fruits of Zion on the DDK. DDK is a very early document, probably written about the same time as these letters, that was written to help the Gentile churches to know how to operate in some ways. Talks about baptism and the Lord's Supper and those kind of things. But also talks about these people who come in and preach for a while and then go their way. These kind of traveling ministers that we find in Matthew chapter 10. The apostles did that and others. And basically, the idea is you're to test them, make sure that they are of God. And if they're of God, you listen to them, but you watch out for them. Because some of them are just there for themselves. So, for example, the Dita case says, if somebody says, God wants us to have a banquet. And so you all put in your money to have a banquet. If he eats from it, he's a false prophet. Because he's getting you to do things that benefit him. And the minister is to self-sacrifice for the benefit of you. And so the DDK talks about this. Then when a person has shown themselves correctly and you have treated them well, caring for them while they're there, you are to give them enough to get to their next place. Okay? That's it. You're not supposed to fund them for the next three years. You're supposed to get them to their next place. And so if they ask for more, they're a false prophet. That's the idea. So Paul's saying, when these guys come, I want you to receive them. I want you to treat them nice. I want you to be at peace with them and send them on their way appropriately. And that's what he's addressing in that context. Now in verses 13 and 14, Paul, this is where I wish he would have expanded. Paul is going to give them five things 
In some cases, these are simply a word. In English, we have a phrase. Paul gives them five things that he says is critical for them to be aware of and to do. So, let me read that first. He says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Be on the alert. Interesting. This is a phrase that in some sense quotes Jesus. In the parables, talking about the last times and times of suffering, which Paul has talked about in the Corinthian letter. Times of persecution, times of difficulty for the religious community. Jesus gave parables about how that would be, and he said, watch, be on the alert. This notion of being on the alert is the idea of understanding the times and the circumstances that we're living in against the backdrop of God's plan. Here's what God's doing. Here's the difficulties in that process. Now that's one of the reasons why right between these two letters, I want to put the Benedict option. You and I are living in fascinating times. All you have to do is turn on the news if you can find news. And you will see that there are things happening in this culture and in the world that are pushing towards end time scenarios. Now the danger is people thinking that we're in the end times, it's about to happen, and then they go crazy. I went through that in the 60s, I don't want to go through that again. It's possible that when the end time comes, like a sheet, it'll just rip open. But I suspect that what Jesus teaches in his parables is that this ripping of the world is kind of a rip, 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 that kind of thing. So we get these surges where it gets chaotic and those are to remind us of the direction that's heading and to wake up, be alert, and do that. So I think that what Paul's saying to them, wake up, gang. Pay attention to the times and the circumstances that you are in so that you will be ready, your household will be ready, your children will be ready, your grandchildren will be ready. Secondly, he says, stand firm in the faith. Two problems always face us in this faith. First of all, the faith is not just believing the gospel. The faith is represented by all the scriptures that we have pulled out of the ark today. And we have said all that God commands we will do. And we have said thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. And the idea is that we rejoice because God has brought us to salvation. He's given us a path to walk and we're going to walk that path. And two things, two things will separate us from those paths. One is assimilation. Assimilation is the draw of the world to say, you don't want to do that. That's, that cramps your style. Come this way. You can bring Jesus with you. Just do it this way. Just be part of the culture. Go with the flow. 
Be part of this framework. And your children will then grow up in it. And they will be more like us. And they'll probably even give up Jesus. Assimilation. The other one is persecution. Okay, if you're going to be like that, we're going to hurt you. Both of those things push us to avoid the ways of God and kind of go with the flow, either out of fear of persecution, fear that we'll be ridiculed, fear that we'll be mocked, fear that we'll be hurt, or it's just easier to go this way. Paul says, stand firm in the faith. The faith once and for all delivered to the holy ones. That's why as disciples of Jesus, we're desperately trying to learn all that's been done in the past in Judaism and Christianity. Bring those tools into our toolbox so that we're prepared for what happens in the future for our children and our grandchildren. Not just lay away Christianity, but a living, vital faith that's in the home and in the congregation in a world that's becoming more and more dark. Third thing, he says, act like men. It's really one word. In the NASB, we have act like men, but it's just one Greek word. And it's a word that basically means man up, be adult, be mature. It's the idea that we are not to be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. By everything that comes in, by manipulation of other people. But to be, you know the difference between a person who's not quite sure and they get a phone call and somebody says, we're from the electric company and we need your, uh, your check bounced and we need your checking account information. If you're mature, if you're an adult, if you know what's going on, you go, something wrong here. If you're not, if you're childlike, if you're gullible, if you believe things, you can be easily manipulated. So the idea is that you have to be able to be critically thinking and you have to be stable in your faith. And then he says, be strong. Technically, this word means become strong, not just be strong. It's not a a static thing. It's a process of strengthening yourself in preparation for what you're about to face. So Paul says, look at the circumstances, hold clearly to the faith, grow up, and be strong. And then he gives us the ultimate statement, which is consistent with what he's been saying in the book. Make sure that all you do is done in love. Now, we've got the 1 Corinthians 13 where he tells us what love is about. This is what the commandments are about. It's what I call the gyroscope of the faith. You know, an airplane has to know what direction it's going. It's got to know its altitude. It's got to know uh, its direction in that sense. Uh, there's, you know, cars, we just have to go forward and sideways, right? But, but planes have this three thing. We have those two. You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, all your life, and all your strength. Your relationship to God is holiness. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor, you won't kill him. You won't take his wife. You won't ruin his reputation. You won't steal his stuff. Those things, you won't mess up his reputation. Those things are goodness. Holiness and goodness. And then Jesus said, a new commandment I give you. That you love one another. Unity. As I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. So the three major commandments are love. Love God, love your neighbor, love one another. Holiness, righteousness or goodness, and unity. Make sure that everything you do is done in love. Live the commandments, live truth. Live an obedient life. Stay on the path of life as you wait for the Lord to come. Now having said that, Paul then says, in verse 15 and following. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus and how they were the first fruits of Achaia and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. That you be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and the labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus. Because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Now Paul's talking to them about founding members of their congregation. When Paul first started the Corinthian church, these were people who were the first fruits. The first founding people of the congregation. And they worked hard to make that congregation take place and to develop. And he says, you know them. You've experienced them. You should pay attention to those kinds of people. Those people who do the hard work for years and years and years. They have come to me. They're still ministering to me, Paul says, as they ministered to you. Now, I can't help... But think of the Herrigs and the Hosacks in this context, in this congregation, who still minister to me in, in some sense and have ministered to you and continue to do that. The, the idea that if somebody's no longer in the congregation and they're not with us is stupid. I was at a church once where a, a couple left and then one of them got terribly sick. And somebody said, we need to pray for these people because the wife is very sick. And one of the deacons stood up and said, can we pray for them? They're not a member anymore. Now that's what Baptists used to call landmark. The only church is our church. We are the body of Christ wherever we are. And those who have been faithful, remember Apollo said, I can't come now. There are times when people can't be with us, but it doesn't mean they're not of us. There are people who leave us because they were not of us. But there are people who are out of our immediate context, just like your kids will one day grow up and move out, maybe. Depends on this culture, right? Uh, and, and they'll still be family. You'll still love them. You'll still want to visit them. That's still relationships. And Paul says, subject yourselves to those kind of people. Learn from them. Be encouraged by them. So, 
some of the rabbis I brought in here, they are connected to you. Even if they're not members here, they have been part of the founding of what this congregation is about. Now, Paul then moves on and says in verse 19 to verse 21, The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The original is Hershey's kiss. Just want you to know that. Uh, The greeting is in my own hand. Paul's. Literally, the Greek says Paul's. Paul had someone else writing as he dictated, but he's going to write, he's going to sign it himself. He says, the churches where I'm at are greeting you. Priscilla and Aquila, very close friends of Paul. Uh, If you read the book of Acts uh, and were involved at some point with the Corinthian church, uh, they greet you with the church that is in their house. Very many of the congregations around the Greco-Roman world were fairly small. And they would meet in homes of people who had the ability to have people in their homes. And ultimately those homes became little chapels and then the chapels became churches or synagogues in that sense. Though That was the early development of, of congregations. And so these house churches are greeting them as well. It's important to keep in mind that over the history of Judaism and Christianity, the average size of a congregation, the average size of 95% of all congregations from the first churches to the present, 95% of them were 50 to 100 people. That's how God works. And you know that because the more people you get, the less anybody does. And then you hire people to do the work. Okay? That's not relational. Paul's talking about relationships to them. And he's signing to them and we're greeting you. Now, the early believers saw themselves as the household of God. They saw themselves as the people of God. And so, if you have a family member that you haven't seen in a while... What is usually the first thing you do when you see them? You embrace them. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about a holy kiss. A kiss that acknowledges that we are family. That we belong to one another in that context. Now, for some of us that's a difficult thing. But the idea is that the greeting of one another needs to be part of our interaction with one another. Particularly, when I go to a UMJC conference or something like that, I get hugged to death. Okay? Uh, the rabbis have broken down some of my walls there. Um, and not all of them. Uh, but but, but I'm, I'm growing in grace and in experience in that context. But it's, it's, it's an important thing that we acknowledge each other. And that's what Paul's doing. It is practicing not just the presence of God, the presence of the communion of saints, which is really important for us to do. So, after doing that now, Paul is going to give his final statements uh, in verses uh, 22 uh, to 24. 
he begins with a statement that says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be cursed. Paul is not talking about outsiders. We have a tendency to say, there's those in the church and those outside the church. Outside the church, they're cursed. We had a reading earlier today where it talked about the godless and sinners, right? Who are the godless? Those without God. Who are the sinners? Those who claim God but live differently. We treat the unbelievers as if they're sinners. They're not sinners, they're godless. Do they sin? Apparently, but they have no standard. But those who say, I believe in God, and then live as if God doesn't exist, they're the sinners. And that's, that's the more Hebraic understanding of the term sinner in that context. So he says, if there's anybody among you, and those among you don't love the Lord, they're cursed. Then he says, Maranatha. Come. Lord. You can you can almost you can almost hear the weariness in Paul. He's been through a lot. And when you've been through a lot, you've suffered stuff, and he says, I gotta take care of the churches, and I get shipwrecked, and I get beaten, and I get thrown in jail, I get accused by the brethren, I get accused by the Jews, I get accused by the Romans. You know, wouldn't this be a good time for you to come? I mean, it's like the end of uh, Fiddler on the Roof. When they're being kicked out of the village. And the guy says, Rabbi, wouldn't this be a good time for the Messiah to come? And he says, we'll have to wait for him somewhere else. Right? Come, Lord Jesus. And John says, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Right? Really important that our focus is on eternal things and the kingdom to come. And then he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And my love be with you all and all who are in Christ Jesus. The apostle who is being scorned even in his own congregations still has love for all who are in Christ Jesus. And we should be able to say amen to that. So, the letter of Paul was intended to be read in the churches as we have done. The apostles still speak to us and instruct us as to how we are to engage this faith so that we can pass it on to our children and our converts. We're also going to read his second letter as a series, but before that we're going to look at the Benedict Option and the other books that we've been reading. I hope you'll read that. As I said, I want to make that a discussion uh, because we have to be alert and aware of the context in which we live. And I'm going to begin that next week. So please get those books, read them, borrow them, look at the videos. If you're not going to do the books, you'll at least have some idea what we're talking about. Come with questions, come with thoughts, including some of the application of that to the letter of transition I read to you last week. Because I want us to be discussing those things. I don't want us deciding anything until we understand. Okay? This is not ready, shoot, aim. Right? which is pretty typical. What we want to do is be alert, be aware, be wise, be intentional, and make good steps for the sake of our children and grandchildren 
in that context. So I hope you'll be a part of that. And if you can't make it for a given week or something, I hope that you will uh, get with people and find out what was said, listen to what was said, watch the videos, and engage in the conversation. Let's pray.